Well, let me pray for us, and then let's get into the Word this morning. Father God, thank you for who you are, Lord. Uh, thank you that you provide for us and that uh, you will make a way for us to hear from you. Lord, as we walk into some difficult territory this morning, Lord, I pray uh, that you would meet us. As we hear hard words, that we would not uh, put up our defensive walls, but instead receive what you have to speak to us. Lord, we love you, we trust you, and we pray that you would meet us here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and in the middle of it, I heard a stat that surprised me. I'll give you the category. It was the percentage of actors, people in the Screen Actors Guild, so people who are in the Screen Actors Guild, who you know, pay the fee to be in that group. Uh, how many of those people, what percentage of those people make more than $30,000 a year from acting? Okay, the people who are in the Screen Actors Guild, not just like, I'm an actor, people who are in the Screen Actors Guild who make more than $30,000 a year from acting. Take a guess, you can put your guess, guess in the stream if you want, throw a number out there. I heard all kinds of numbers this morning. Any guesses from people in the room? 10%, Katie guessed 10,000%, I'm not sure how that would work. Right, we heard, I heard 50%, 30% this morning, all kinds. The real answer, how many people in the Screen Actors Guild who make more than $30,000 a year from acting? 2%. 2%. Only 2% of them make some sort of a living wage as actors. On the same podcast, I heard an actor describe auditioning for commercials. This is an actor, uh, actress you've heard of. She said she went on auditions for nine years. She went to over 1,000 auditions for commercials. And guess how many she got? Zero. See, being an actor is way different than my idea of it. It's less financially rewarding. It's harder work. My sister-in-law worked professionally as an actress for about five years. I remember talking about it with her at the time. And she said, oh, yeah, there's long hours. It's difficult conditions. We hardly make any money. And uh, as we're talking about it, I'm thinking, well, hang on a second. Well, then why do you do it? If you don't make any money and it's long hours and tough conditions, why do you do it? And she said, oh, I love it. I love it. She, did, she didn't say, I hope to become rich and famous someday, although maybe she wouldn't have minded that. But she just loved the work. And in fact, that's the advice she would give to people who wanted to become actors. She said, don't do it if your goal is to be rich and famous. That is very rare. Become an actor, if catch this, if you love acting. If it's all you can imagine doing with your life. Well, today we're starting a new series in our lead up to Easter called Definition of a Disciple. And like being a professional actor, being a disciple of Jesus may not be what we expect it to be. You see, it won't make you perfect by being a disciple of Jesus. It's not going to make all your dreams come true. It's not like you get baptized and then suddenly you become a rock star. Uh, you, you certainly won't get rich. It won't fix everything that's wrong in your life. In fact, it's going to cost you more than you realize. It's going to hurt more than you're ready for. And it's going to change you in ways that might make you very uncomfortable. So should you do it? Should you become a disciple of Jesus? Well, only if you love Jesus. And it's all you can imagine doing with your life. 
In the next few weeks, we're going to look at several passages that define from Jesus what a disciple is. The call he makes on our lives from the Gospels. And my hope is that as we consider his words and allow his spirit to work in us, that our ideas of discipleship, what we think being a Christ follower is, will fall away and that we can really see and embrace the life that Jesus calls us to. I think most of us have created our own version of what we think a Christ follower is. I include myself in this. We've said, you know what a Christ follower is? It's my version of Christianity that includes the things that don't change me very much. Yeah, 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 I'll, I'll make some changes, but, but really, I, I'm going to decide how much I'm going to follow him. I'm going to decide my picture of Christianity. Look, I think all of us do that. And my hope is that as we hear from Jesus that our picture of what it really means to be a disciple would come into conflict with the picture we have now. I'm hoping for conflict. I'm hoping that we sit there and go, wait, maybe, maybe we're not really following Jesus. Maybe we're really following ourselves. And that we would allow that to work on us and break us and change us so that we would be actual disciples of Christ. Let's start today in Luke chapter 9. See, Jesus in the previous passage had just fed 5,000 people. And I think that's one of those days that's like an advertisement for Christianity. Imagine you're serving with Jesus and you're like, hey, what are we going to do today? And you feed 5,000 people. I mean, that's a great day in ministry, right? All the highs. Woo, man, we're feeding people. I'm part of a miracle. This is a great story. You know what people say to you all day when you're feeding them? Thank you. All day the disciples had walked around handing out miracle bread. And everybody they went to, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This means so much to us. Wow, thank you. Wow, you're with him? How cool. It's a great day in ministry, right? And it's awesome. And you're like, man, this is a great deal, this following Jesus, right? A small time afterward, we come up upon Jesus and the disciples, and they're talking about uh, their experience with the crowd. Miracle bread. Jesus says, hey, hey, tell me about your experience with the crowd. Here's how he puts it in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. It says, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? And they replied, verse 19, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Now, this is a great place for us to begin our series, to consider that question for ourselves. Who do we think Jesus is? You know, it's actually one of my favorite questions to ask people who do not claim Christ. Not as a setup for me to go, who do you think Jesus is? And then go, wrong, let me tell you who he is. No, but just genuinely, genuinely curious to ask people, who do you think Jesus is. And when the disciples were hearing about that, they got some great answers. I mean, you'd be very flattered to get these answers. If someone said these things about you, right? I mean, they're, they're getting the free bread. They'd obviously heard about his miracles and healing people and casting out demons. And they give out their opinion like, oh, he's probably like John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist had famously called people to repentance and stood up against some of the uh, corrupt political authority. That's a, that's a compliment. You're like John the Baptist. He's fierce, right? 
And then some said, you know, you know, he's like Elijah. And Elijah was known for doing powerful miracles and standing up to a corrupt king. They're like, oh, that's what he is. He's a powerful miracle guy, and he stands up to the corrupt establishment. That's another problem. Or, you know, maybe he's, he's, a, he's an old prophet who's come back to life. I mean, that, that's pretty good, right? And so this is a safe question. He goes, hey, guys, what does everybody say about me? It's a, we can have a, let's have a conversation about what people are talking about. And look, anyone can answer that question. Hey, hey, what are people saying about me? What are people saying about New Hope? If I said, hey, what are people saying about New Hope? You go, oh, people say this, people say it's good, people say it's bad, people say it's weird, people say whatever, right? They can say whatever. But then, then Jesus changes the conversation. He goes, it's not about what they say. He goes, great, now we know what they say. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? Because here's the thing. What each one of us believes about Jesus shapes how we see the world. The values that we hold, the choices that we make. Once we decide who Jesus is to us, that changes us. Who is he to you? I remember talking to a guy years ago. He was going through a, a rough patch with a serious girlfriend. They've been together a long time, and they're on the edge of breaking up. And he, he comes in, he's kind of weepy, and he's in my office, and he goes, and he says, so I don't know what to do. What should I do? She broke up with me, right? And, uh, and he says, what, what should I do? I'm like, I don't know. I mean, she seems cool. She loves Jesus, right? He goes, I don't, but what should I do? I'm like, I, I don't know, man. Like, and I finally, I said, hey, let me ask you a question. I'm stealing this line from Jesus. I said, hey, uh, so who is this girl to you? Who is she? He looks at me and he's like, kind of gathers, and he goes, she's my wife. And I'm like, okay, then. And then it became like a romance movie. I was like, that's your wife, son. You go get her. Go and get her, son, right? Sacrifice. Humble yourself. Make it right, and ask that girl to marry you, right? And he goes out, and he's going to do that. Now, it didn't work out. No, it did. Actually, it did. Um, but that was the answer, right? The answer was, it wasn't, you know, should I or shouldn't I? It was, who is she? If that's some girl, let it go, man. Move on. Take your lumps. If that's the woman for you, go sacrifice. Go make it work, right? And it's the same question when it comes to Jesus, but bigger. Who is Jesus to you? And a lot of people, when you ask them, who's Jesus? They say, he was a great teacher, right? If he's just a great teacher with some good ideas, uh, you know, then you know what you should do? You should uh, study his teaching, pick out the ideas that you like, and then quote them at parties, right? Maybe you could kind of think through and go, you know what, uh, maybe I'll try a little Jesus idea here, and then over here I'll, I'll get into the whole, like, does this spark joy in my closet? You know, just put them in the self-help book category, right? Some people just put them in a list of interesting historical figures. You might say, you know, Jesus, he's just an interesting historical figure. He's a good, and he's a great fodder for a conversation where you want to look intelligent. You know, Jesus had an idea about that. Let's discuss it and see where it fits in with our ideas. But listen to Peter's response. He says, who do, you, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. The Messiah. The Messiah is the promised Savior of the world. It's not some prophet. It's not some historical figure. He's not John the Baptist. All those guys are great. He's the promised Savior of the world, the one and only promised Savior of the world. 
God incarnate. If Jesus is indeed God's Messiah, uh, then he deserves more than memorizing some lines or considering his ideas. If he is indeed the promised Savior, if he is God incarnate, he has a claim on our lives. We shouldn't just uh, think about his words. We should hang on them as the keys of life and death. He shouldn't just be a topic for conversation. He should receive our full allegiance, our total trust. Being his disciple is not a light task. I think often we, we treat it as if it's something that we can do sometimes and not other times. I was uh, watching an uh, old clip of The Office the other day. I'm sure many of you have seen The Office. And uh, Ryan in The Office says, he goes, I'm looking for some strong leadership. He goes, what I really need in my life is strong leadership. I, I want a strong leader uh, who, when I'm in the mood, when I'm in the mood, will lead me, and then I can kind of consider the stuff he has to say, and maybe I'll do it. I, I think so often that's our response. We're like, man, I really need strong leadership. I, I want to follow Jesus when I'm in the mood and when what he says already agrees with what I've decided to do. Most of us treat Jesus like someone who congratulates. You know, like I'll, I'll ask my wife sometimes, I'll be like, hey, how did you like dinner? I don't really want to critique. I want her to say, that was the best chicken I ever had. I'm not looking for, I'm not looking for her, I, I just want to be approved of. And I think often that's all we do with Jesus. We say, just, just give me some approval, Jesus, when I'm in the mood. But that's not what being a disciple is. Jesus says that being his disciple uh, carries a heavy cost and one that should be counted before deciding to follow him. So here's what Jesus says, verse 21, after uh, Peter responds that, he see, that Jesus is God's Messiah. Verse 21 says, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. It was a dangerous thing to understand. And Jesus didn't want to get all that stuff started, all the persecution, all the hard times. He goes, don't get that started yet. Yes, you you see it. Don't say it to anyone. It's that powerful of a thing to say. In verse 22, when he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. There was an idea that when the Messiah came, that he would restore Israel as a political power, that he would throw off the enemies of the Jews, that the religious, and that the religious leaders would celebrate this and follow him. But that's not what Jesus had come to do. The real problem he came to face was not Rome, but the sin of his own people. And the leaders wouldn't follow him, but instead they were going to dig in their heels against them as he exposed their corruption and hypocrisy. He's going to be rejected by the leaders that the disciples had grown up with. And instead of being celebrated and followed, the Messiah would be killed. Can you imagine that cost? He said, hey, following Jesus means that your parents and your local pastor and the famous Christians are all going to reject you. All the stuff you grew up with, they're going to think you're a moron. And people that you think of as great. Now, we, you know, from our perspective afterward, we're like, oh, those guys were all corrupt. They didn't see it that way. They were the most righteous people they knew. The most righteous person you know was going to say, um, that guy's not the Messiah. 
Uh, in fact, we're going to kill him. He's so dangerous, we're going to have to get rid of him. He's blaspheming against God. You want to blaspheme against God? These people, they looked up to their whole lives. They said, Jesus says, you follow me, understand that you're going to have opposition from people that you right now think are great. Jesus says there is a silver lining, though. I don't know if the disciples heard it, if they were still hearing about the chief priests and the killing part. But he says, after three days, God's Messiah will rise again. Something that the disciples had a hard time believing and didn't even really understand until they saw it happen. So Jesus lays out for Peter and the rest what following him looks like, the cost, the benefit. Verse 23, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. He says, whoever wants to be my disciples. Now, we can have our own definitions of what it means to be a Christ follower. I mean, I hear them all the time, right? They usually start with the phrase, shouldn't Christians blank? Shouldn't Christians do this? Shouldn't Christians do that? And usually that thing that comes after shouldn't Christians is something that we're really comfortable with that other people need to change. Rarely do I hear people say, shouldn't Christians do a thing that I need to change in, that I'm wrong in, and that other people are right in? I wish I heard that, but that's not how we do it. I do the same thing. We say, oh, we make up our own version of Christianity that includes all the stuff that we're familiar with, that we're comfortable with, that we think is great, and that means other people have to change. Well, here's what Jesus says. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple, this is hard, must deny himself. Anybody wake up this morning and say, you know what I want to do today? I want to deny myself. I hope I don't get anything I want today. That's what I want. I, don't, I, I, need, I need to not get anything I want, anything I do. That's what I need. I need Jesus says, deny himself. And here's the secret, right? Following, with Jesus, following Jesus is a fresh life. Denying yourself literally means to forget who you were. Paul says, the old is gone, the new has come. The disciple starts over with Jesus. And look, even when I was dealing with this this week and reading this passage, I kept getting defensive. And I was like, but what about this thing that I did before Jesus? And what about that thing I did before Jesus? And what about that thing my sweet aunt does who's not a Christ follower? Right? What about those things? And we get defensive. We say, no, wasn't this good in the old life? And we're making up our own definition. Well, here's what Christians should be about. But what Jesus says is you have to deny yourself and start over. Now, are there things from our old life, uh, skills, talents, relationships, that get reshaped and redone by Jesus? Yeah, absolutely. He loves that. He's in the redemption business. He's in the, you know, uh, uh, reusing business. But the will of self, the living for ourselves, dies if we're to follow Jesus. And if I think of it like following a map, it helps me. If I said, you know, following Jesus is like following a map, like literally following him. What if I only followed a map and I only followed it 50% of the time? Would I get where I was going? No, I'd be lost. 
I used to play this game with my kids when they were little. We'd get in the car. We called it find a park. And we'd get in the car, and then when we got to an intersection, left, right, or straight, uh, a different kid got to pick the direction each time. And whatever they said, we did. Left, great, right, great, straight, great. And if we saw a park, we'd stop and play in that park. It's a fun game, a great way to play some, get find parks you didn't normally go to. It's also a good way to, like, randomly end up in Schaumburg by mistake, right? And so and also, as the dad, if I had a, a place I wanted to get to, and the truth is I always wanted to end up at Dairy Queen. That's where I was going. I had to do more than just take over once in a while. Sometimes I'd say, all right, hang on. Uh, you know, dad gets a turn, too, and I'm trying to get us somewhere close to where we're supposed to be or get us back home. But if I only get to choose one out of three or one out of five times what turn we make, are we going to end up where we want to go? Of course not, right? Discipleship begins with confessing that my old life, that my life without Jesus is dead and gone, that everything I've done without Jesus is either something that needs to go completely or was only a shadow of what it was meant to be. Every time I try to hang on to a little something, it spoils my ability to receive from him. It's like I'm holding all this stuff, and I'm already full of my life, right? And if I want to receive from Jesus, but I only drop some of it, I can only get so much in there. I'm still clinging on to my own burden, my own things, and I'm choosing my own stuff over what Jesus would put in that place. Imagine that in a relationship. Imagine that you said, well, hang on a sec, that seems like a really high standard. But imagine in a relationship, those of you who are married, what if I said to my wife, Liz, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to think about you and be faithful to you 99% of the time. How would that go over in my house? How, how would that end up? I'll tell you, I would end up dead, okay? Now, it's not our job to be perfect. Look, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to step off the path. But our will, our desire, is that we're completely following Jesus. We're not negotiating with him. So when we step off the path, what do we do? Same thing we did in communion today. We confess. We repent. We obey. But I give up my right to my own way 100%. I'm not in this uh, negotiation with Jesus. I concede that his way is better than my way. That's the beginning of discipleship. The old life is gone. The new life has come. I'm 100% following Jesus. I remember a woman I knew well. She had she developed an attachment, an addiction uh, to a sinful thing. She wanted it every day, and it was powerful in her life. But uh, she became a Christ follower, I remember. And I asked her, I said, did he take away the want of that sin in your life? She said, no, I still hunger for that sin every day. And I said, so what do you do? She goes, every morning I ask God to so fill me with himself that there is no place for anything else in my life. You know, when I first heard her tell that story, I was brokenhearted for her because I thought, how terrible to live with this desire for sin. And I'm like, actually, I think she's blessed. Because at least she acknowledges it. She acknowledges a daily need to be completely filled with God in order to obey him. And how many things in my life I just kind of stumble into what I stumble into. 
where I'm not filled with him and I kind of choose my own way or I, I don't acknowledge that, I, that I'm really in love with that sin. In place of serving ourselves and following our own desires, disciples take up their crosses daily. Now remember, when Jesus says this, it's before the, the crucifixion has happened. Well, the disciples know what crosses are. They know what crucifixions are. They'd seen convicted prisoners carrying crosses at their execution. So when Jesus says, take up your cross daily, he's saying, you know what, you're going to need to, your life's going to be much more like a convicted prisoner going to his death than a victory march up the hill where we're throwing off Rome. He says, these are hard instructions. Denying yourself, crucifying yourself, but they're necessities if we're to follow him. See, the disciples had seen the beginnings of the ministry, the miracles, the healing, the joy, the redemption, the love of Jesus. But if they were going to really be in their master's business, really call to discipleship, they were going to have to die to self. In case they didn't understand, he tells them another way. He says, if you want your old life, you're gonna, if you want to save your old life, you'll lose eternal life. If you're willing to let that old life die, if you'll let me put it to death, then you can know real life. And they had a taste of that. They'd seen a taste of what Jesus was doing. Because if you want real life, eternal life, real life with me, the best thing, better than you can imagine, you've got to let this old stuff go. And a disciple is one who's traded away their life for the life of following Jesus ends with a picture of the end of our lives, a picture of what happens when we stand before him. He says, if you're someone uh, who's followed me, there's eternity for you. If you're someone who's been ashamed of me, ashamed of my words, afraid to obey me because of the cost, he goes, on that day, I'll be ashamed of you. If we despise his trade, reject his offer, if we're so in love with our life and the way of the world that we're ashamed when he calls us of what he calls us to, then on judgment day he'll be ashamed of us. So we have to ask ourselves the hard question. Am I living like a disciple? Am I living like a disciple? It makes me think of this uh, couple I met years ago right after we got out of grad school, Liz and I, um, I went to a meeting at Wycliffe Bible Translators. They're a famous organization that translates the Bible into some of the languages the Bible doesn't exist in. There's still thousands of them. We met this couple. They had worked hard and retired early in their mid-50s. And I remember the guy saying, goes, my original plan was we had all these uh, lists of places we wanted to visit. You know, we wanted to go to Italy and a lot of places that are not as good as Italy. And uh, then I, he goes, I wanted to work on my golf game. I thought I'd get my, uh, you know, improve my golf game. And, uh, but as we're retiring, uh, God said, uh, no, <laughs> not those things. I have, I'm not done with you yet. You may be done in your vocational work, but I, I have something for you. And he called us into Bible translation. And they had taken 10 years, and instead of going to Italy or France or whatever, uh, they had gone to Kenya, not as tourists, but to a people group there that had 400,000 people, many of them young Christians that did not have the Bible, the New Testament, in their own language. And so they spent 10 years. The first thing to do, they had to learn Greek. Then they, had, they lived there for years learning the local language and meeting with leaders and understanding it. Uh, the people there did not have a written language. They helped create a written language for them. And then they spent those years translating uh, the, fr from the original Greek 
into this new written language and teaching people to read it. They'd spent 10 years and 400,000 people received the New Testament in that language. You know, when I heard that story, I thought, these people are heroes. I think they're just disciples. I think they're normal in the kingdom of God. You see, how do you know you're a disciple? I think it shows up in three things in your life. It shows up in how you spend your time. It shows up on your calendar. It shows up in how you spend your money. It shows up in your bank account. And it shows up in what you give your best to. It shows up in your effort. And I looked at them and I said, it showed up in their time. They gave 10 years, their retirement years, they gave to this work. It showed up in their bank account because they self-funded. They took the money they could have used for traveling, and they said, we want to invest it in this kingdom work. And it took their effort. I mean, who wants to learn Greek when they're 55? Do not raise your hand back there. Greg, who loves languages back there. No one wants to learn Greek at 55. There's just a couple people. It shows up in your effort. The disciple is called to a life that's about Jesus. So I want to invite you to a difficult conversation. It's one I'm having with the Lord, and I'm seeing some things in me. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Or are you a disciple of your own brand of Christianity that you've made up that works for you? I have to confess that in many things, in my time, in my money, in my effort, I'm much more following after a brand of Christianity that I've made up than the one that comes from the lips of Jesus. Let us consider together. Let us allow the Spirit to break us in this that we will not be standing at the judgment day and realize that we had not really followed our Savior. Let us be a people who over and over again come back to him and say, Lord, change me in this, grow me in this, break me in this, denying ourselves and picking up our crosses daily. Not the life that we've made up for ourselves, but the one that he calls us to that has greater cost and infinitely greater reward. The one we'll be thankful for on the day of judgment. Let me pray that for us. Father God, Lord, we hear hard words from your scripture today. Lord, I confess to you that often I am about my own comfort, my own brand of Christianity that's easier for me to follow. It doesn't always involve me humbling myself or admitting when I'm wrong or sacrificing. Lord, let us be so full with you that the life you call us to is a joy. Lord, let us be a people who are serious about our uh, about the call to discipleship, who count the cost. If there are some listening today who, who think, oh, I'm a Christ follower, but 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 the word, that the life that they describe has nothing to to do with who Jesus is and what he's called to, I pray that today be a day of conviction. Lord, let, let none of us be comfortable in, the, in choices we've made that glorify ourselves. Let us humble ourselves before you and live life in the way that you call us to. We pray these things in the mighty and matchless name of the risen and returning Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for worshiping with us. Have a fantastic Sunday.